Christchurch, New Malden. Sunday the 12th of September 2021. 9.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, How the Bible Presents the Church, the Kingdom of God. Living in occupied territory. That's something that most of us here have never had to do, have we? Live in occupied territory. I think we've got a picture of that coming up, hopefully, on the screen. There are some illustrations of people living in occupied territory. Why haven't we had to do it? Well, probably, well, for a long time anyway, because of the English Channel. The English Channel has really meant that since 1066, this country hasn't been taken over by a foreign power. Now, there are some people who say that the lack of that experience in our sort of cultural memory explains quite a lot about the British psyche and why it's rather different from, say, a French or an Irish one. But actually, it doesn't have to be a foreign power that does the occupying, does it? In the last few weeks, many of us have looked in horror about what it means for people in Afghanistan to be occupied by the Taliban, something that, again, is largely beyond the experience of most of us here. But the perspective of the Bible is that, in a sense, we do live in occupied territory. And that's because of what the Bible says about sin and evil. When we look at the world around us, including within this country, we don't have to look very far to realise that things aren't as they should be. There are loads of wonderful things within this world, of course there are, but alongside those things, we see plenty of examples of things like injustice, things like inequality. We see cruelty, tragedy, hardship, disappointment, and brokenness. And the Bible's explanation for why this is the case is that the good world that God has made has been invaded. It's been invaded by an alien force called evil. Now, that's not a very popular notion today. It can sound rather superstitious. It can sound a bit of a throwback to a pre-scientific age when people didn't have the explanations we have today and so reached for rather superstitious ones. But it simply explains too much to be dismissed. Belief in evil doesn't mean believing in literal devils prancing around dressed in red with horns and pitchforks. It means recognising that the biblical pictures that such images resemble are metaphors. They're metaphors for a destructive quasi-personal power at large in this world, which can all too easily get hold of people, organisations and nations and corrupt the good intentions that God has for this world and our lives within it. Well, that's a rather negative start, Vicar, to your first sermon since January. Well, it would be negative if it wasn't for this. It would be negative if it wasn't for what the Bible also says about the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God constantly. He spoke about the kingdom of God more than he spoke about anything else and what he meant when he used this term was the rule of God re-entering the world to claim back that occupied territory. So just think for a moment about the sort of things that Jesus did. 
Jesus brought God's healing to people who were sick, didn't he? Jesus brought God's forgiveness to those people who thought they were unforgivable. Jesus showed God's love to those people whom no one else would give love. Jesus even, on rare occasions, admittedly, raised people from the dead. And perhaps most mysteriously, but crucial for what we're thinking about this morning, Jesus drove out demons, didn't he? Those really strange, perhaps slightly off-putting events in the Gospels called exorcisms. So what was that all about? Well, the Jewish people, when Jesus came, were very much awaiting the kingdom of God. It's really what their faith was all about. They were an occupied people, quite literally. The Romans ruled their country and were oppressing them. And the constant hope of the Jewish people was that God would come. God would come and rescue them by establishing his rule over the world, by establishing the kingdom of God. That's what it meant to them. And Jesus came as Israel's king or Israel's Messiah to fulfill that hope. But there are at least two things that Jesus did that made his take on the kingdom of God very different to what most Jews expected. First of all, by driving out demons, Jesus showed that the problem was much deeper than simply good Jews versus bad Romans. What Jesus' exorcism showed was that evil, rather than the Romans, was the real enemy. The evil that actually runs through every single one of us and can't be limited to one type of people that we then call baddies. We might find Jesus' exorcisms rather strange and off-putting. We might think, mm, you know, we'd rather that wasn't part of what Jesus did. But they actually show us something that deep down we know already. That dividing the world into goodies and baddies actually doesn't get us anywhere near the heart of the problem. The problem of evil is a much deeper one, running to repeat through every single one of us. So that's one thing that made Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God different to what people expected. But the other thing was the way that Jesus said the kingdom would come. Most Jews expected God's kingdom to come in power with the very obvious destruction of their enemies, the Romans. But Jesus showed through his parables as much as through what he did, that this kingdom of God came very differently. God's kingdom had arrived, Jesus said, like a tiny seed. It was like a tiny seed that was growing quietly and largely unnoticed before one day it would become an enormous tree. God's kingdom was continuing to come, Jesus said, by people loving rather than hating their enemies and actually praying for the people that persecuted them, the complete opposite of the way that most people expected God's kingdom to come. God's kingdom had come, Jesus said, or came, through it being received as by a little child. And God's kingdom would come, Jesus said, through the love of a loving father, freely welcoming back a son who had completely disowned his father and run away. That, Jesus said, was the way that the kingdom of God would come. That was the way that the occupying power of evil would be overthrown. Not through might, not through power, 
but through humble and sacrificial and very often small and largely unnoticed acts of love. And of course, all of that, all of the things that Jesus spoke about and did during the three years of his ministry, largely in Galilee, it pointed to the ultimate way in which sin and evil would be defeated when Jesus died on a Roman cross. That was the decisive moment when God's kingdom really broke in, when evil came face to face with the fullness of God's love in Jesus, and that love defeated it and took away its power. That's why we talk about Good Friday. And that's why three days later, the resurrection of Jesus occurred to demonstrate what? To demonstrate that evil was a defeated enemy. So what has any of this got to do with the church? That's what this sermon series is meant to be about, isn't it? Well, when Jesus called people to belong to him, he called them to be disciples or learners of what it meant to be part of God's kingdom. That's what the Sermon on the Mount early on in Matthew's Gospel is all about. It's about how to be a follower of Jesus, how to be part of this kingdom movement, how to live under the rule of God. And early on in the Sermon on the Mount, it says this, and these are famous words. It says, you, talking to Jesus' followers, talking to the church, talking to us here at Christ Church, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill can't be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And that, in a nutshell, is the calling of the church. We're called to live as a community that demonstrates to a watching world what it means to live under God's rule, and by so doing, to shine a light in a dark world. Our calling is to shine a light that shows people the way that gives people hope, that draws people towards it and the loving rule of God that it represents. It's not just Jesus who said that. We find something very similar in the words of St Paul when he writes to the church at Philippi, this small church wondering how it should go about being a church, and Paul says this. The first line is quite challenging. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Why? so you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold out the word of life. And this, to repeat, is what the church is called to be. We're meant to be a shining example of what it means to live under God's rule and the goodness and the attractiveness and the plausibility of this. See, that's why we wrote to all our children and young people before last week's service, inviting them back to church. That's why we invested in giving them those presents. It was all part of trying to shine a light for God in the dark world of COVID and all the stuff that's gone on over the last 18 months. That's why it's so important that we have welcomers outside this church every week. We have the Reed family, all five of them, doing their stuff this morning. We need others next week to do the same. We want to make it clear that everyone, without exception, is welcome to this church. 
And it's why, most crucially, our lifestyles and supremely our relationships within this church have got to demonstrate a sacrificial love that displays both to us, to one another, and to a watching world what the rule of God is like. The church needs to be a visual aid of what the kingdom of God is. And it's when people see stuff and then hear the stuff that perhaps gives explanation to that that they tend to get it. The church has got to be a symbol, an effective and active symbol of what the kingdom of God is all about. It's got to be a powerful sign to a watching world that the occupying power of evil has been defeated and one day it will be fully driven out. Now, when I was a kid, from about the age of sort of three and a half onwards, as some of you know, I was obsessed by this figure, Robin Hood. And it's never really left me. I've got virtually every film made about Robin Hood and plenty of books on him as well. The interesting thing about Robin Hood is that other heroes have come and gone. Other heroines, they've had a time where they've been very popular and then they've passed out of the nation's consciousness. That's not true with Robin Hood. Robin Hood's never really left. And the enduring popularity of Robin Hood through all of the constantly new versions of the story that keep appearing is really because of what he represents. So right from the earliest medieval ballads, Robin is someone setting up an alternative community in the forest, a community that's distinct from the surrounding world with all of its corruption. And as the legend of Robin Hood developed and more and more was added to it, Robin's band became his merry men, opposing injustice, and eventually they become a people living on behalf of the true king, awaiting his return, and demonstrating their loyalty to him in the meantime by opposing the evil that has usurped his power. And there's quite a bit in that that can help us to understand the role of the church. Because we too are called to be an alternative community, living lives that celebrate our allegiance to another king in Jesus Christ, a king whom we're promised will one day return and put everything right. So celebration and merriment, we're meant to be merry men and women, should be a big part of church. Because what we're proclaiming here on a Sunday is that however tough things might be, there is a good king who is in charge and will one day return to put everything right. And we're proclaiming that we belong to him. That's why that joyful children's song that we have at the 9.30 service each week, that's why that is so important. That's why it was so appropriate that last week, Barbara, on our return, chose for it, our God is a great big God. That wonderful song of celebration. Celebration and merriment is a crucial part of what it means to be church. Church should never be boring. Church should be alive with energy and joy. And of course, that's the great gift that the children bring with them, don't they? The children are such a gift to this church because they bring so much joy and energy and merriment and fun with them. But within those Robin Hood stories that I referred to just a few moments ago, there's a particular place also for those who've been mistreated and marginalised by the outside world. In the Robin Hood stories, they're the sort of people who find help, support and welcome from the outlaws. 
And when the church lives as the kingdom of God, we'll be similar. We'll be a community that places a particular priority on welcoming, helping and including people in precisely that situation. But living as the kingdom of God, as the church, isn't just about celebration. It's not even just about inclusion and welcoming everyone. One of the things that Jesus made most clear about the kingdom of God is that live under the rule of God and the result will always be suffering. Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And what we get throughout the New Testament is a repetition of this, that following God, living under his rule, it involves suffering. So just one other example occurs uh, when St. Paul tells uh, people who've become Christians on his first missionary journey, he uses this phrase. He says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What's this all about? Why is this such an emphasis within the Bible? Well, the reason for this hardship is that when we say that we follow another king, and particularly when we do things based upon our allegiance to him, the occupying powers, the powers of evil, they won't like it. They'll react, and they'll react really strongly. Now, when I say this, I'm not really just talking about the invisible forces of evil. I'm talking about where they become embodied. You see, if you join an office, a company, or a school, where there's a particular culture that you stand apart from, perhaps, perhaps even criticised because you're a Christian, and what you'll find fairly quickly is that you suffer because of this. You might not be beaten up, but you may be marginalised. You might be ridiculed. You might be seen as not a team player, not fully getting on board with what you should be doing. All institutions, sadly including the church, can become corrupt. And if we call that out, then the reaction can often be extremely strong. It's complex because, as I said earlier, the kingdom of God coming isn't just a question of the goodies defeating the baddies. Evil is something that runs through all of us. That's why some of the most wonderful prophets that the church has ever had, and there's just two of them who shared a name, the most wonderful prophets that the church has ever had have often been deeply flawed as well. But that can't let us off the hook. The church and its members, flawed though we are, are called as part of God's kingdom to proclaim his kingdom truth and his justice. And we're called to do that in very concrete situations that come our way, and we're called to suffer the tough consequences that will really, if truth be told, always come when we do that. If we live kingdom lives and we speak out God's truth, particularly on matters of justice, we will be given a hard time. It's not a question of just doing it well enough that no one minds. It will always be tough. And suffering is never nice. But the kingdom basis of this is what enables Paul to say this really weird thing, that he actually rejoices in his suffering. Now, we had a bit of that in the passage that was read earlier, but here Paul says it slightly more explicitly. It's a rather weird thing to say, isn't it? We rejoice in our suffering. Why did Paul say that? Is it because he was some sort of masochist? 
I don't think it was for that reason. It's because Paul realised that suffering for being a Christian was a sign of the kingdom coming. It's a sign of the kingdom coming because of the things it produces. Suffering, he says, produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. What's that hope all about? It's the hope of God's kingdom one day coming fully and finally. And that's something that is guaranteed to us, the Bible says, by the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. The Bible describes the Holy Spirit as a sort of down payment, a first instalment of the way that God is going to one day make things in their entirety. Over 26 years ago, Katie and I were on honeymoon in Cornwall. And there was one day, and I've never forgotten this, that we went into a tea shop run by a very smiley little old lady. That isn't her. I didn't stop to take a photograph because phones couldn't do that sort of thing at the time. That is a sort of another picture of someone who's a bit like her in my memory. And she served us in this tea shop, and uh, was very nice and friendly. And as we sat drinking our tea, uh, something happened. The door opened, and a rather surly teenager arrived looked at the lady, nodded at her, she nodded at him, and he walked through the shop out to the back. And we thought, a little bit odd, but didn't think much of it. Then a few moments later, the same thing happened again. Another fairly surly teenager arrived, looked at the woman, nodded, walked through the shop to the back. And I certainly, maybe Katie as well, were a little bit worried about what was going on, what was actually happening. So we actually asked the lady who ran this tea shop, And there weren't many customers, and she came over and she opened up to us about the fact that she was a Christian. And that shortly after her retirement, her husband had very suddenly died. And it left her totally devastated because all of the plans that they had for their retirement had suddenly gone up in smoke. They had great plans of all the things they wanted to do. Her husband had retired, and then he very suddenly died, I think, of a heart attack. But, she continued, because she was a Christian, she decided she'd keep running this tea shop and try to be a Christian presence in the town. And part of that involved, she believed, making the back room of the tea shop available to local teenagers as a place where they could hang out. And she spoke about it, I remember still, 26 26 years later, very sort of tenderly, about the fact that these kids needed somewhere to hang out and she wanted to convey a bit of God's love to them. Now, I've got to be honest, it didn't totally reassure me about what those teenagers were up to in the back room. But it was a shining example. It was a shining presence from this woman through her suffering that she was determined to bring a bit of God's loving rule into her town and to those teenage lives. She wanted to take back, although she didn't use this language, some of that occupied territory. And I've never forgotten it. It had a really big impact on me. I really was sort of very arrested by what this woman said. We were only there for about half an hour, but I've never forgotten what she said and how she explained it. And it is, I believe, a wonderful example of the calling of the church. The calling to every single one of us as individuals and as groups, friendship groups, but also as a community altogether, to establish small, usually undramatic signs of God's kingdom. To establish signs of hope. To establish signs that the occupation of this world by the bad stuff, if we prefer to phrase it that way, isn't going to last. 
And each week in our services here at Christchurch, we say the Lord's Prayer, don't we? And right in the centre of the Lord's Prayer, and in the centre of it because it's so important, we pray that line, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. The hope of the New Testament is about God's kingdom coming to earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the church's task in this messy and often dark world, the calling of Christ church, the calling of every single one of us, is to be part of that kingdom. By establishing really tangible, life-giving signs that God is in charge, that evil isn't in charge, the bad stuff isn't in charge of people's lives. That's what people, if enough bad stuff happens to them, can be persuaded is the truth, that the bad stuff's basically in charge. And life is about just getting your head down and getting through it if you can. And the church is meant to be a sign of hope, a sign that that's not true. That because of the coming of Jesus and supremely because of his death, evil isn't in charge. And one day it will be totally swept away. And people will believe that if they can encounter a bit of it. If they can encounter a bit of it, however small, they will believe that message and hope is transforming. Once people have hope, all sorts of things become possible that aren't before. When people don't have hope, very little in terms of change is possible. So we are here individually in what we do during the week, but crucially as a community, because together we can do amazing things for God, to be one big sign of hope. So during this week, let's reflect on where we're going to be. Where are we going to be this time tomorrow? What will we, be, will we be up to? And what are the opportunities that God is giving us to be signs of hope? Who are the people we'll be with this time tomorrow? What are the issues they're facing in their lives? What are their hardships? What are their difficulties? What are the things that make them think life is really tough and difficult and perhaps means they are largely without hope and what can we do differently to be a sign of hope to those people we don't have to preach to them we don't have to sort of give them loads of words but what are we to do to be a sign of hope and let's also reflect particularly as we relaunch Christchurch about what are the things that we should be doing as a community what are the things that we can most do to fulfill our calling to be a sign of hope to the people of this town? A sign that God's kingdom has come in Jesus and will one day come to completion and that God's love is available to every single person that lives in this world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that the bad stuff has not had the final word in this world. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the coming of your rule, your kingdom. And we pray that you would direct us to the things that we can do to be a sign of your kingdom, both as individuals and as groups of friends and as a church. We ask that you would guide us to this. In Jesus' name, amen.